Um, what are the four beasts in chapter 7? Anyone? 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 Eva? Very good. Strange beast would be a good way to say it. All right, very good. Next to Levi, the youngest person in the room. I know, I'm sure Levi knew that too. He was just being humble. Um, all right, so those are the four beasts. Now, one of those beasts has a little horn. Uh, which beast is it? Anyone? Sebastian? The strange beast. How many horns does the strange beast have to begin with, Judson? Ten. Is the little horn one of the ten? Yes or no? No. This is Paulson. It says no. Uh, that is correct. It's an eleventh horn that comes up. And that uh, fourth beast represents which, which nation in history? That strange beast. This is Martin. Rome. That is correct. So the little horn comes out of the Roman Empire in Daniel chapter 7. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, there are two beasts. What are the two beasts in Daniel chapter 8? Eva. The goat and the sheep. Um, the ram. It's a male sheep, to be more specific. So it's a ram and a goat. And sometimes you see it called a he-goat because it's a boy-goat also. Um, how many horns does the goat have? I mean the ram. How many horns does the ram have? That would be a trick question otherwise. Leander has two. Are they the same size, these two horns? Eva. No, they are not. What two nations, according to Daniel chapter 8, do the two horns represent? What two nations in history, Pastor? The Medes and the Persians. So if the two horns aren't the same size, one is bigger than the other, the bigger one represents which nation? Media or Persia? Eva. Persia. Very good. If this were Jeopardy, I think you'd be winning. If it were an auction, I'm not sure. Um, all right. Very good, Eva. Um, so, now, the, the, that's the ram. The goat represents which nation? That's correct, Levi. Greece. All right. Represents Greece. How many horns does the goat have at first? Pastor. Nope. Uh, one. That is correct, Scott. Um, has one horn. And what happens to the one horn? Jonathan. He gets split into four? Not quite. It gets broken. Broken off. Who does the horn represent in history? Judson. Alexander the Great. Um, then four horns just come up out of the head. I don't think they come up out of the horn. They just come out of the ram's head. And that represents the divided Greek empire. Okay, so in Daniel chapter 8... A little horn appears out of the four horns, comes up out of one of those four. So what nation does the little horn come from? The four horns are the divided Greek empire. That little horn would be... That's more specific than I was looking for, but that's correct. Okay, comes up out of one of the Greek empires. And in history, what we talked about a little bit last time, is uh, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes comes out of the Seleucid Empire. Um, all right, so we've all caught up. All right, uh, sorry, ready? Now we'll start waiting. That was just a fly, fly over to catch us up to where we left off. Um, what am I looking for? PowerPoint. Share it. 
right. And we'll wait for my mother to send me a text. She already sent me a text, uh, 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 an Irish blessing, which my mother is full Irish. And uh, there was some debate over that, but recently her brother, who's very close to her, um, had one of those Ancestry.com genealogy tests and came back 100% Irish. Uh, so my mother is 100% Irish, um, and uh, which makes me happy. But we're the old Irish. We aren't the red-headed, blue-eyed. That's the German side of my dad's family. Um, Irish folk have dark hair and dark eyes. I didn't get any of that. I got all the recessive German genes, I guess. But anyway, if you saw my dad, you would think he was Native American, by the way. Um, I don't have a picture of him. Uh, it's his grandfather's grandmother who was Indian or Native Canadian-American, Native North American-Canadian. Anyway, um, that doesn't have anything to do with Daniel. But it just catches your attention. Anyway, <laughs> it won't be on the quiz. Put it that way. All right, so the book of Daniel, chapter 8. Uh, we mentioned this last time here. We'll just kind of continue the review. Um, we have uh, chapter 8 is the ram and he goat. We're in the second half of the book of Daniel. So the first half we call historical uh, because it, uh, though there are visions, they aren't all visions uh, in the first six books, but they are more historical stories um, that are told to us. Uh, the second half are prophetic chapters. The first half go in chronological order. And the second half of the book goes in chronological order, but the entire book is not chronological. As we saw, chapter 7 and 8 take place during the reign of Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Um, so we have the four beasts and the ram and the he-goat. And uh, some of this is, uh, from Daniel's perspective, of course, this is all future, well, except for he's in the kingdom of, of Babylon already. But this is pretty much all future. It's all known as the time of the Gentiles. Uh, once God starts working in the world through the Gentile nations, when Israel is taken captive. Again, that's Babylon. So it starts with Babylon. Uh, we talked about in these other chapters, like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, and even last time on the four beasts, that Babylon is the first nation of four great nations. We know that because Daniel is told that uh, specifically in chapter 2 when he gives the interpretation of the dream. He says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Remember, kings stand for kingdoms. Um, so that's why the Medes and Persians in Daniel 8, uh, those two horns could also stand for the kings of those, which would be Cyrus and perhaps Darius the Mede or perhaps um, someone named Gaburu that we talked about before. That's in secular history. Now, we know that the next two are the Medes and Persians combined and then the Greek Empire from Daniel chapter 8. We are specifically told this in Daniel chapter 8. It is revealed to us hundreds of years, well, not for the Medes and Persians, it's just a couple years before them, but a couple hundred years before the Greek Empire, uh, Daniel prophesies about this. And the prophecy in Daniel 8, verses 9 through 14, is so specific that we can point to history and we know exactly who it's talking about. Because of this, people who do not believe in inspiration of Scripture believe that Daniel had to be written somewhere around 150 B.C. instead of 540 B.C. Because there's no way he could have known ahead of time such great detail of what was going to take place. Now, these are, these are secular scholars or they're so-called Christian scholars, but they don't believe God inspired the Scriptures. And so this is one of the most difficult points for a critical scholar to deal with is the book of Daniel. And therefore, it's the book of Daniel that gives us so much confidence in the inspired word of God uh, because these prophecies were fulfilled in such great detail. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's free. 
All right, uh, so we talked a little bit about the outline, and we're going to look at this in a little bit more detail. Um, the vision is given, and then the interpretation of it. We're going to look at two particular passages tonight about that. Uh, this is just a review of the Persian Empire and how much it took over uh, the land, and then the ram, and we talked about the goat. The Greek Empire, how much it had taken over of land and very quickly by Alexander the Great, and then it was divided. And about the time it was divided, um, the Roman Empire here was pu always pushing up against the Greek Empire. And so they lost most of the West uh, almost immediately. And Egypt is going to come into play. Um, Parthia is here, is going to come into play. Persia is over here, uh, is going to come into play. Syria is right up here. That's all going to come into play tonight. And so we want to kind of have a map in our head. Um, the promised land, there's Jerusalem, I think, right there. Oh, you know, it's even spam, man. Uh, and then uh, Jerusalem's right there. So here's Jerusalem and the promised land right in there. So you want to try to keep that in mind because we're going to talk a little bit about that. All right. So let's look at two passages. Uh, Daniel chapter 8, we're going to read verses 9 through 14 first, and then we're going to jump over to the interpretation, uh, which is verses 22 th through 25. Those are the verses in particular that we are interested in. All right, so Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 9, out of one of them, okay, so that's the four, uh, the four horns, four conspicuous horns, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. That would be the Israel. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And notice that prince is capitalized in our ESV translation. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, all to, uh, to it together, with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And notice that that's singular because of uh, a transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its right state. Then the other passage is in the interpretation of this vision, which is starting in verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, so this is the Alexander the Great horn. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So that's the map we just looked at. Four nations arose, but not with his power. They were all weakened and lost a lot of what Alexander had gained uh, almost immediately. And then they fought, in, they fought each other as well, which didn't help. Uh, not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Uh, okay, so this is the interpretation. Now, I've given you four uh, interpretive options for, uh, these, for, for these two passages here that we just read. The first is the historical view. The historical view says that all of verses eight through nine, and uh, chapter eight, verses nine through fourteen, and twenty-two through twenty-five, 
was fulfilled by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And we talked a little bit about Antiochus last time. We'll talk a little bit more about him again tonight. Uh, so in history, we can point to all of these verses and say Antiochus fulfilled everything. There is nothing left to be fulfilled in these verses. So that's one option. Um, the second option I'm calling a split view. Uh, I'd, I... I don't know what else to call it. So I called it a split view. Eight, chapter 8, verses 9 through 14 and verse 22 are fulfilled by Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, but chapter 8, verses 23 through 25 are fulfilled in the future by the Antichrist, or the little horn from chapter 7. Okay, so the little horn, is he, are they the same person, or are they different people? And if you remember your handout, or, or have a copy... There, I, I give you three reasons why they are different people. Um, these two little horns. In Daniel 7, the little horn is Roman. and comes out of ten horns, and he harasses Israel for three and a half years, 1,260 days. In Daniel 8, he's Greek. He arises out of the four horns, and he harasses Israel for 2,300 mornings and evenings. Um, so they don't appear to be the same person, but in the split view, there's a change that takes place in verse 23 that shifts the focus to this, to the Antichrist, or the little horn of chapter 7. The third option is double fulfillment. So all of chapter 8, verses 9 through 14 and 22 through 25, were fulfilled historically by Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, and they will be fulfilled exactly as they're stated, again, by the Antichrist, or the little horn of chapter 7. And then the fourth one is a typological fulfillment, and if you know me, you already know that I don't hold to the fourth one, uh, is all of, that's just a two pastor. Uh, all of chapter 8, verses 9 through 14, 8 through 22 through 25, were fulfilled by Antiochus, the fourth epiphanies, but he typifies the works and attitudes of the future Antichrist. So he is a picture of what the Antichrist will be like in his attitude and in his works, um, but the Antichrist isn't going to fulfill these verses specifically. So that's a so four and four is similar to one, uh, and three is similar to two, uh, but there's they're a little they're a little nuanced. Uh, well, three is also kind of similar to four, um, but they're a little nuanced. All right, have I confused you yet? Oh, I get our stairs. I don't know if they're blank. All right, we'll see if I can get you confused as we walk through the passage. All right, let's look at uh, the first passage, starting in verse 9. So, uh, Daniel 8, starting in verse 9. Okay. Yeah. All right, and we'll talk about it. All right, so out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, this is a Greek ruler. He comes out of one of the little horns of the divided Greek empire, and he is going to uh, attack or push toward the south, which in biblical terms, that's Egypt, uh, toward the east, which is back toward Media and Persia, and toward the glorious land, which is Jerusalem. Verse 10, so this little horn, this man, he grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host, of, uh, and, some of the host and some of the stars, the horn threw down, this man threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Okay, so who are who is the host and who are the stars? Um, the the south the directional thing is fairly simple to for us to understand, but this is kind of the first question. So who are uh, who are these? The word host literally means army. Okay, that's what it literally means. Now in the Bible, it often refers to uh, angels, the host of heaven. Usually is angels, and angels 
are considered to be an army uh, often in the in the scriptures. Um, and it says here, even to the host of heaven, and it's talking about the stars. Host also refers to stars. Okay, so the stars in, in the sky, the physical objects, are often called a host in the scriptures uh, and referred to as stars. Um, but it's interesting that in Daniel chapter 12, uh, there is a verse here in 3. I think it's verse 3. Yeah, Daniel 12, 3 says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So if host is an actual army, and the stars refer to the Jewish people, then what we're looking at here is perhaps when it says he grew great, uh, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down, uh, could be referring to his attack a speci uh, specifically against the Jewish people. Um, so on, on account of those things. Um, and throwing them down to the ground and trampling on them. Um, some, some commentators will say that maybe the, the stars uh, talk about the leadership of Israel, uh, the princes and the rulers of Israel, that they were thrown down. Uh, in other words, they were captured or they were uh, brought under service to this king um, while, while he trampled over the people, uh, which, is, which is possible as well that they could distinguish the rulers. But in, in any case, I think this is referring to the, the Jewish people. Verse 11, it became great, and I, I should just interrupt myself here, uh, good men disagree on the interpretation of these verses and the final conclusion. In fact, I'm drawing from two, three, three of my professors that I've had over the years, um, all three of whom disagree that they hold three different views of this. So just to let you, give you a clue. Um, all right, so verse 11. So the, the little horn became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Now, what's interesting about this, ESV has capitalized it, and that's probably correct. There's very little dispute that the prince of the host is God himself. Uh, and there, therefore, again, the host being the Jewish people. So God being uh, the prince of the host here, as, as the reference to him, what it's saying is the little horn exalted himself to, the, to be equal with God. Uh, he, he elevated himself uh, to be at that level okay, and made himself like God. So even as great as the prince of the host. And, and the regular burnt offering, now unfortunately regular is not a good translation. Uh, daily would be a better translation here. And it makes more sense later in the passage, the word daily instead of regular. Okay, the daily burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary is overthrown. Now the question is, who is him and his? All right, it's not the little horn. The little horn doesn't have daily, the daily burnt offerings, and he doesn't have a temple. So it's the, the prince of the host. That's who the, the pronouns refer to. Uh, to whom the pronouns refer. So uh, the, the prince of the host is going to lose uh, his, burnt, his regular burnt offerings are going to be taken away from the prince of the host. And his sanctuary is going to be overthrown, which is the idea of desecration, not destruction. Okay, overthrown, when you think of a building, you think it's torn down. But in this case, since it's a sanctuary, it's the holy place, uh, it's desecration. So God is the prince of the host. The, sacrifice, the sacrifices that are going on in the temple uh, are going to be at, at the time of this prophecy, because they aren't going on at the time the prophecy happens. The time that Daniel has this vision, there's no sacrifices going on in the temple. Um, so at the time the prophecy takes place, those events, there will be a temple, there will be sacrifices. And... 
uh, they're going to be uh, stopped. The sacrifices are going to be stopped, and the sanctuary is going to be defiled. Uh, the temple is going to be defiled. So that's chapter 11. All right, so a host, then notice a host, again, so or an army, will be given over to it. Okay, that's the horn. The horn is still the it. A host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering or the daily burnt offering because of transgression. So the question here, it appears, is, well, whose host is given to whom and uh, what does that have to do with the daily offerings and what's the transgression? All right, so very briefly, um, the host is probably an army again. It's probably the Jewish people again. And it means that when this Jewish army is going to be defeated by the horn, the, the horn is going to defeat the army. Um, and because it defeats the army, it's going to take away the daily burnt offerings. Um, and because of transgression. And the question about the transgression is what transgression and whose transgression? Now, the, we don't know for sure. Some would say it's the transgression of the Jewish people, like Daniel's going to ask for forgiveness for the transgressions of the Jewish people in Daniel chapter 9. But here in Daniel chapter 8, um, the Jewish people are the saints. They're the stars. They're the righteous ones. They're the ones who are offering the sacrifices in the temple, which at the time of Daniel's vision is not occurring. So it seems like the sin has to do with the sin of the little horn uh, here, and not the sin of the Jewish people. The li there's going to be, or a, a great sin is going to take place, uh, caused by the little horn. Perhaps it's just a... We don't know who's going to do it. It's not a divine passive, but the actor is left out of the prophecy. And the little horn, it, will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Now, truth to the ground, of course, sounds like, you know, picking up a Bible and throwing it on the ground. Like, literally, literally that's what it sounds like. Um, and could very well actually be what it means. Perhaps, as we look at Antiochus, uh, there are some that would say, well, Antiochus was burning Torah scrolls. Um, and there's also a comment on the other side about uh, deceit. Um, his cunning shall be made, uh, by his cunning, verse 25, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. Okay, so there's a couple different ways that truth could be taken here. He's either putting down God's truth or elevating a lie or both at the same time. Um, but the truth of something uh, is going to be cast down. And when it says it will act and prosper, it basically means whatever he puts his hand to, he will be successful at. Um, all right, and then verse 13, there's two angels, two holy ones, who speak to each other, uh, evidently to give Daniel the date here. Uh, and he says, um, notice in verse 12, 13, how long is the vision concerning, the, concerning these things? The daily burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate. So the transgression in verse 12, which I said it was a transgression, it's singular. Okay, Here it's the transgression that makes desolate. It's a, it's a specific transgression. Uh, the giving over of the sanctuary, or, the, or the, again, the uh, desecration of the temple, and the host to be trampled underfoot, okay, the Jewish people to be persecuted. How These four events are not necessarily chronological. They're just four events that have to take place. How long are they going to take place for, or over what time span are they going to occur? And it says for 2,300 evenings and mornings. This, the sanctuary shall be, uh, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, this is confused. This number, 2,300 evenings and mornings, is, is, is another tricky spot here. Uh, some say because it says evenings and mornings, it's 1,150 days. 
that would be just over three years and like two and a half months, something like that. Um, if we take it as 2,300 days, full days, then it would be just under six and a half years. Now, as I stated before a couple times, I take numbers literally unless the text gives us any reason to take them otherwise. And I don't, I don't take them otherwise in this case. I take them literally as 2,300 days. After that 2,300 days, so during the 2,300 days, um, those four things are going to happen. The daily burnt offering is going to cease. Uh, a, trans trans a transgression that makes desolate is going to happen. The giving over of the sanctuary, or the, the, de the desecration of the temple, is going to happen. And the Jewish people are going to be persecuted. Those four things are going to occur within the 2300-day period. Now, when the 2300-day period is over, then the sanctuary or the temple is going to be re restored to its rightful state. So it's not rebuilt, but it's purified and used again for the normal daily sacrifices. Now, there could be a, a, a gap between the 2300th day and the day the temple is consecrated. Um, we, we, we see that we'll see that again in Daniel chapter 12 uh, we see that often in the scriptures like there's going to be a gap between the rapture and the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel we'll look at that Lord willing next week um, but there's uh, so there could be a gap so 2301 doesn't have to be the consecration of the temple okay now that brings us to Antiochus because this is why it brings us to Antiochus uh, I tried to put on this, I redid this slide to try to cor correlate it to the passage that we just walked through. Uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes was from the Seleucid Empire. He was a Greek. He reigned from 175 to 164 BC. Now I'll just give you a, a clue. Some of these years are debated, but they're only off by one. He died in 164 or 163. Okay, 175 we know, but 163, 164. Um, in 172, he visited, or maybe 171, he visited Jerusalem. And Antiochus wanted to, um, he w wanted to make a great name for himself. Well, who's he competing against in Greek history, recent Greek history? if you want to make yourself a great name. Alexander the Great. No, no chance whatsoever. So what Antiochus did, and this is important for our understanding actually of the New Testament as well. What Antiochus IV did is he said, look, if I'm going to make myself a great name, I have to be greater than Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world in a couple of years. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Greek culture, which we know is superior to every other culture known to man, and I'm going to impose it by force on all the countries that I reign over. And that included Jerusalem. So when he went to Jerusalem and he saw the daily sacrifices and he saw the temple and he saw the Jewish people, he said, you guys are like these Granite Falls hicks. You're a little backwards. You're not up to date with the times. You're not speaking a lot of Greek. You don't have any gymnasiums. You don't have, you know, good public education. There's a lot of stuff wrong, and we need to fix this. So he began to impose what was later known as Hellenism. Okay, so the Greek word for Greek, okay, is, is Helen. All right, so if you look at the name of the country of Greece in the Greek language, it's the word Helen or Hella. Okay. So... He wanted to spread Greek culture, and he wanted to impose it by force. He had to on the Jewish people because they had these weird religious ideas that forbade them from worshiping idols and stuff like that. He just couldn't get past that. They also wore modest clothing. So uh, he was a little taken back. So he visited them there, and he said, yeah, we need to fix this problem here in Jerusalem. So 
in uh, 171, shortly after that, he appointed Menelaus as a high priest. And Menelaus worked for Antiochus IV. Okay, even though he was high priest. So that way, when Antiochus said, we need to change the rules a little bit here, you know, so that we can have people worshiping other idols and other gods, maybe even me, and, uh, you know, doing different stuff, Menelaus would allow for that. He attacked Egypt, his brother, Ptolemy. He attacked him twice, once in 170 and again in 168. And we mentioned in verse 9 that Egypt is the south, and Antiochus goes to the south and uh, attacks Egypt. He also goes to the east, or to the, yeah, to the east, Parthia, Armenia, and Persia. And actually, it's not just one year. It's over the course of 168 to 164 or 163. Um, he pushes off to the east. And again, verse 9, uh, he, he's exceedingly great. He grows toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, he had already visited there and started incorporating these Hellenistic rules in uh, the 170s, early 170s. But in 168, after he attacks Egypt, he goes back to Jerusalem and he attacks Jerusalem. He starts putting more pressure on Jerusalem. So it says uh, he grew toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. So now he um, began to persecute the Jewish people in more detail. Um, I think somewhere, I think in your handout, I put down some things that he did to the Jewish people. And this is just some of them. Didn't I? No, I didn't. Oh, it's not, it's not in your handout. It must be in my notes somewhere. Uh, Antiochus did a whole bunch of stuff um, to the Jewish people. He set up uh, a gymnasium, for example, right in front of the temple. Now, those of you who have studied your Greek history, you will remember that men were allowed in the gymnasium and they were not allowed to be dressed in the gymnasium. This was a problem, especially if you look at Leviticus oh, 18. I think it's 18. Uh, there's a real problem with nudity if you're a Jew. Uh, a good, uh, it's not a problem. That's a good problem. Uh, so... Um, but that he was enforcing this. So you had to go to the gymnasium, you had to take off all your clothes before you could enter the temple. This was not good if you were a Jew. Okay, this was a real problem. Um, he caused the sacrifices to cease in the temple. He dedicated the Jerusalem temple to Zeus. He put up idols in the temple. Uh, he stopped the observance of, of Sabbath. Um, he burned the Torah. Um, and he allowed Greek soldiers to uh, act licentiously uh, at or around the temple area because he was trying to get Greek culture uh, in that place. So the Jews eventually um, revolted. About 168, uh, Mattathias Maccabeus revolts, and then his son Judah uh, picks up where after Mattathias died. The temple is restored about 164 December, and we have a, a holiday. We don't, but the Jews have a holiday to this day that celebrates this temple restoration. Does anybody know what the name of that holiday is? It's the Festival of Lights in English. Pastor? Hanukkah, yes. Heavy on the ch. Hanukkah. Okay. So Hanukkah is a celebration of the temple restoration, and there's a lot that happens there. So we can read verses 9 through 14, and we can line up everything, even the just under six and a half years from uh, Antiochus starting to Hellenize uh, Jerusalem to the uh, end of the revolt and the temple restoration to just under six and a half years. Um, we can... Um, we can find a very easy equivalent. Antiochus thinking himself a god, thinking himself equal to God, wanting to be, uh, wanting to have Greek gods worshipped in the temple alongside of the Lord. 
uh, all of those things. So it seems quite clear um, that Antiochus fulfills uh, the verses from chapter 9 through 14. Now, in precise detail, we're not sure. For example, what is the transgression? That's debated because there's a lot of transgressions to choose from. Uh, one that some commentators like is Menelaus killed uh, the, a former high priest and, that everyone liked. Okay, He was a pious man, and the story goes that Menelaus had him murdered because he was a pious man. And that that is just, a, it's approximately six and a half years. It would have been about 170 in the late summer, early fall of 170, uh, which would give you six and a half, or just under six and a half years um, to when the temple is restored. Mrs. Martin. He is a Jew, but he is set up by Antiochus. So Antiochus could have full control over the changes that are happening in the temple. So this is where we get Hellenists in the New Testament. Um, this is where they come from. They're Jews who are enculturated in, in the Greek culture, speak Greek well, etc. And because they, they compromised on scripture, the more traditional Jewish people that come through the Maccabees uh, were, didn't like them. Um, it was kind of like fundamentalists and evangelicals, you know, the Maccabees and the Hellenists. And uh, not, not quite, that's not an exact parallel. Push that at all, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall flat. All right, I was going to talk a little bit more about the Maccabees, but we don't, we don't have a lot of time. Mattathias was a country priest, and he first stood up to Antiochus when Antiochus was coming back from Egypt uh, through, Jeru through the Jerusalem area or through the Judean countryside. Um, his, he died in 166, and his son Judah, who in the, the Latinized version is Judas Maccabeus, and if anybody plays any string instruments, he played from Handel's oratorio, um, took over and led the, the military revolt uh, the guerrilla warfare that drove out Antiochus and eventually saved the city of Jerusalem um, and then they, they went through and cleansed the temple. Um, and Hanukkah you'll find spelled various ways depending on who in English is spelling it. Um, but Hanukkah comes from, First and Second Maccabees is, records most of this history, it's in our Apocrypha. And uh, Hanukkah comes from a story of a miracle that happened in the rededication of the temple. Uh, they ran out of oil to relight the menorah, but they had enough to light the first day, and the second day when they went in to light the second candle, there was still enough oil, and the third day, etc., until all the candles of the menorah were lit. And it was a miracle of the oil not running out. And so it's the Festival of Lights. All right. We'll talk about that more next year. All right. Um, so, the other side. I'm trying to rush a little bit because we're almost out of time. In 22 through 25, so verse 22, it says, As for the horn that was broken, that's Alexander the Great, uh, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Okay, so that is fulfilled by the divided Greek empire. But now notice that in verse 23, a whole bunch of interpretive problems start. At the latter end of their kingdom. Okay, so at the latter end. Uh, it also says uh, at the end of verse 26, uh, it refers, the vision refers to many days from now. And there's a couple other places that talk about the time. So the emphasis here, there's a break. In fact, there's a break in the Hebrew text as well. Um, verses 23 through 25 are set off as poetic in the Hebrew text. And they're separated grammatically also. Um, and you see in English it says the word and. Better translation might be now. Um, so, the, so there's a, a textual and a grammatical break between 22 and 23. And then it says at the latter end. So at the end of their kingdom. Well, in one 
Um, oops, wrong way. In 164 or 3, uh, when Antiochus dies, there's a hundred years left of the Greek Empire. Or more, depending on when you date the beginning of the rise of the Roman Empire. But you've got at least 100 years, perhaps 120. It doesn't seem like it's at the end of their kingdom. If there, that's another problem, refers to the four kingdoms mentioned in verse 22. So the word there seems unclear because if it refers to the Greek Empire, if their kingdom is the Greek Empire, um, these events did not take place at the end of the kingdom, uh, at the end of the Greek Empire. Uh, Quite far from it. Only about 60% of the way through uh, the Greek Empire. Um, Next is the word transgressors is plural. It says, uh, let's see, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit. Okay, so in the previous passage, there was a transgression. There was a specific sin that the text mentions would be something that everyone would notice, that this is a sin that they're talking about, the sin that makes desolate. Uh, The other interpretation of that, by the way, is perhaps a a a sacrifice, unauthorized sacrifice by Antiochus in the temple. Uh, There's one story that says that he sacrificed a a pig or sow on the altar, brazen altar, and that could be the sin that was mentioned here. Okay, but anyway, uh, I digress. Okay, so uh, this is transgressors. It's not a transgression. Uh, It is multiple transgressors and they've reached their limit. In other words, um, God is not allowing them to continue transgressing, sinning uh, anymore. They've reached their, they, they aren't going any farther. Um, when, at that time, so at the end of their kingdom, whoever there is, there are going to be transgressors, plural of them, who have transgressed as much as God is going to allow them to, And during that time, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So here's again one ruler who is is rising to power. His power is going to be great, but his power is delegated. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He has delegated power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So this person is going to do many things like the person, like Antiochus. Okay, some of these things are very similar, but you'll notice that the text is quite generic. So it's very general. He's going to destroy mighty men, and he's going to attack the, the, the Jewish people. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. So he's going to be a megalomaniac. That's the technical word. Without warning, he's going to destroy many. So without warning, he's going to, he's going to declare war on people. Uh, he will even rise against, now notice, the prince of princes. Now, this is also capitalized, the first prince. So who is the prince of princes? If, if the prince before was God himself, is this God himself? Before... Antiochus just thought himself equal with God. This time, he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He's going to rise up and attack God himself. Okay, which is probably the Messiah. I don't have time to defend that right now, but I I think you could take it that way. Uh, And he, not the Messiah, but the other... Uh, He will be broken, but by no human hand. And you remember in Daniel chapter 2, the stone that was cut without hands that came and destroyed the image and um, and the entire entire image uh, was destroyed. Uh, So it's not a human who's going to end this person's attack on God. It's going to be God who 
ends this person's attack on God. And that is parallel in Daniel chapter 7 and the courtroom setting that we saw where God judges the little beast who speaks great things. All right, so what we have here, after we look at all these things, is we say these don't appear to line up with Antiochus. In fact, in some cases, they don't line up at all with Antiochus. In other places, they're just similar to what Antiochus has done, but they're not the same as what Antiochus has, has done or did. So what we have here then is something that seems to take place in the future and is, again, more like the little horn of chapter 7 than the little horn of chapter 8. So that is why on your, on your handout, um, I have in the blue box, you'll see that I have the great image under uh, ancient Rome and the revived Rome under ram and goat, you see that I have here the little horn, ram and goat, Greece. And it says the great, the goat, the horn, the four horns, and the little horn. That's Antiochus. And under the revived Roman Empire, not ancient Rome, but revived Roman Empire, uh, we have the little horn. In fact, I should have a little horn in this box under the four beast column. I should have a little horn there too. Um, but we have the little horn. So I think the little horn up here is Daniel 9, 8, verses 9 through 14. And the little horn down here is verses 23 through 25. It's not new with me, it's not novel with me, but I think it explains the differences uh, the best. And when we, when we look at prophecy, one thing you have to be careful about is that just because things are similar does not mean that they're the same. Uh, and that sometimes gets us in trouble 